everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Before we get going today, I want to take a moment and ask you all to become members of Strong Towns. Our organization, we're on the leading edge of a lot of thought and conversation in this country about changing the way we do things, changing the way we build our cities, our transportation networks, our markets. We really need your support, not only financially, but as members, as part of our system, as part of our growing network of people. Go to our website, strongtowns.org, sign up. Even if it's just at the $25 a year base level, your support means a lot to us and is going to help us accomplish all the things that we're trying to do to not only help this organization be more influential and more effective, but help you and people like you around the country do what they can to build strong towns. Strongtowns.org. Thanks, everybody. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Last week, we had Mike Leiden on, Mike with the Street Plans Collaborative. We talked a little bit about tactical urbanism. And at the end, we mentioned a new project that he was part of, a new publication called Mercado, Lessons from 20 Markets Across South America. Mike helped edit that document, but the author of that document, Julie Flynn, is with us today to chat about it. Julie, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. I'm really thrilled about this because your work here is taking a look at kind of something new and fresh, but something old as well, as something kind of making a comeback. I wonder if we could just start out this conversation by talking about what is a market for you and why were you kind of drawn to this research? Yeah, that's a good question, you know, because I think a lot of people, myself included, when you originally think about a market, you you think even that is an easy definition. Something I learned really quickly when I went down to South America was that, you know, what I called a market wasn't necessarily, it was a fluid definition, I would say. It's not necessarily a one thing to everyone. I think for me, growing up as a kid, you know, I lived in a pretty rural area, but I, I loved cities. My mom had lived most of her life in New York City, and um, I grew up in a smaller town in Connecticut. So I would go to New York all the time, and I, I just grew up loving flea markets. And then, you know, as I got older, and I really was aware of this, this trend of farmer's markets in the U.S., and I've really enjoyed getting food from farmer's markets. It's just been something I've always really enjoyed in my own life. And so I guess when I think of a market, I was thinking of the flea markets and the farmer's markets that I was aware of in the U.S., Going down to South America, I quickly discovered that one, you know, there there can do still exist in much more you know present way than in the U.S. A lot of uh, these sort of historic market structures, something that you might see, uh, for example, Reading Terminal in Philadelphia is a good example, um, or Pikes Peak Market in Seattle. So some American cities do have these markets, these central markets built, uh, in the city. But many, many towns and cities have destroyed them long ago. Right. So you do see those markets existing in these South American cities and towns. But there's also all manner of much more informal markets, as well as uh, streets and neighborhoods that look to me more just like a retail street. But they focus on a particular type of merchandise. And people also refer to those as mercados or markets. So it could just be a street where it's all furniture stores. And they say, oh, that's a furniture market. So, you know, I would go to these places sometimes looking for a market building. Well, where's the market? And everyone would say, 
it's here, it's the street. So that definition being very fluid was, was pretty interesting to me too. So people can kind of encapsulate in their mind. How would you talk about a market in the sense that you've written about them and captured them here as being different from say a mall or a strip mall in a modern American sense? What are some of the key differences? It's a really good question because I actually do see a lot of similarities in a way. Sure. Some of the key differences, I would say that I think there's a lot lower barrier to entry. The the market, you know, for, from a vendor perspective, it's a lot cheaper to obtain a stall in, in one of these markets than there might be to have a storefront in, in some of the more modern malls because don't get me wrong, you know, plenty of these South American cities and towns have those too. Sure. So my sense is that the market, you know, it's easier to participate in a lot of ways. There's also often much more nuance in the way that someone can participate as a vendor. So not only, you know, could they have a formalized stall, but you see a lot of roaming and informal vendors as well. You know, sometimes it's it's not permitted, I think, you know, to, to a degree there's some looking the other way as people sort of roam around selling whatever they are, are selling in the market. But it does feel like a much more fluid place where, you know, varying degrees of, of formalized businesses can participate. I also think it feels much more open and public for a couple of reasons. I mean, it's it's often very well integrated in the street. There's not the sense that, you know, this is a, a closed building with, there's this sort of fluidity, I would say. It feels very much like a public space, although, you know, in some cases it is enclosed in a building. And I would also say it's really affordable. You know, usually the markets are the places where you go to get goods that are, you know, just not not very expensive. And so there's, again, this access of, you know, sense of accessibility in the market. Let me quote from the introduction of your report, because I think this is a good way to kind of get to where the things I want to chat about with you. Let me just read this. Historically, many U.S. cities had vibrant central markets. These markets were often held in grand buildings constructed by well-respected architects on choice plots of land. They served as important hubs for commerce and social interaction, and they allowed small-scale producers to reach a high volume of consumers. Towards the middle of the 20th century, many of these central markets began to decline. Many of the once-glorious market buildings were destroyed or fell into repair, and commercial activity ceased to be concentrated in the central market. Look around any U.S. city, and you'll notice that markets are back. I love that last line because it ties together the notion that we used to have something. We allowed it to slip away, even though it had a lot of value, but now it's reemerging. Is that a story that inspires you in some way? And you know, how important do you think that is to where we're at in America 2014? Oh, yeah. No, I think it's really important. And it, it definitely is something that inspired me because the way I see it is that these historic, gorgeous market buildings at the, the beginning of what you read is referring to are, you know, these were, were spaces that were, we really invested in in our communities. We really put a lot of time and devoted good real estate and, you know, architectural resources to creating a very public marketplace. You know, in decades when the center city was declining in the United States and people were moving, you know, to the suburbs and, and just our entire way of existing and shopping and selling became much more oriented around vehicles and, you know, larger you know, driving kind of big box and store environments. We just don't have those anymore. But I think there is such a desire for people to have them, that again. And that's what I see with, you know, 
look around any U.S. city, you'll notice markets are back. I mean, it's sort of this this process of, of repair. You know, in, in some cities, like some of the ones I mentioned, Philadelphia or Seattle, they, they have preserved that building so that if you go there, well, it's still a very vibrant center. But for cities that no longer have those resources, now we're sort of seeing this trickling of, of, of interest. You know, people really in, in parking lots all over the city are having these markets, you know, happen again. So I, I do wonder if, you know, there will be a next phase where, you know, we, we actually start to devote a little bit more physical real estate besides just parking lots uh, over, over a weekend for a couple hours to creating a space again for this type of commerce. Now, these are certainly commercial areas. And I think it's inarguable that the driver for these are largely commercial in nature. But you allude to in that introduction, the social interaction as well. And post-World War II, obviously, we've constructed places largely for commerce that maybe don't emphasize that social part as much as they should or could. How is a market different and why did you include the social interaction as one of the important functions of it? It was just very obvious to me when I went to the markets in South America, but it is something I saw in, you know, in markets in the US too, where it's important because these markets that I observe become spaces where people just want to be. And there's a lot of elements that you know make it that way, but shopping is only one part of the equation. So I think that creates an environment where you know, you're building you're building social capital. People feel that it's a space they can go to just to hang out or just to, you know, have a juice at one of the juice stands. And oh, by the way, maybe they'll buy some some things while they're there. But it doesn't always feel that the only right, you know, someone would have to be in the market space would be if, if they're coming to do all their shopping for the week. And I think part of that relates to that a lot of the markets have public space integrated in, in their footprint. You know, there's either a little plaza outside or a pedestrian street on the side, or the fact that there's a ton of space with you know in the market devoted to enjoying prepared food and, and you know, coffee and drinks and whatnot. Yeah, I think it's a really important element in the market in South America. But again, something we see in farmers markets on the weekends in the United States or flea markets, you know, they're just spaces that people enjoy being. In the end, that does lead to better outcome for vendors as well. Your book here focuses on South America. I think it may be helpful for people to understand how you wound up there <laughs> and had this yeah. kind of amazing opportunity to go around and check all these places out. Well, I I guess I would start by just saying that um, I studied Spanish for a really long time through high school and college and uh, studying abroad in college and a lot of my interest in you know cities and, and neighborhoods in, in the U.S. really made me feel that learning Spanish as, as best I could was really important. So I really had that sort of base going in. And I had worked at a, a urban planning firm specializing in public involvement in New York for a few years and was really eager to do a little traveling and, and maybe a research project independently. And it just so happened that my fiance, who is a medical student, is part of a research project going down to South America himself. So we sort of devised a, a little trip. And for me, I, I started thinking about, okay, you know, what research project would I want to do as, as part of this journey? And I'm just so interested in markets. And I have always felt that in my travel experiences in the past, markets are a lot of times more vibrant and, and integrated into the city than I've seen them be in some U.S. cities. So I thought it would be an interesting thing to explore. And it turned out to really be. So I explored a lot of markets in Peru because that's where I spent the majority of my time. But 
definitely also hit on some others in Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, and Bolivia. And I definitely noticed that there were some differences within the countries for sure. It was a really good experience, and I think it was really helpful to me to speak Spanish. I felt that I was able to ask vendors and shoppers questions and in a very informal way, you know, sort of interview people and get a sense of how things operate uh, better than I would have if I couldn't speak the language. Now, you have an urban studies background, right? Yeah, correct. It, it was interesting to me as I went through your book that you talk a lot about the physical layout and design and kind of some of the the proximity things that went on in, in creating these markets. There's a large physical aspect to creating a, a successful market is what I'm gleaming. Is that one of the findings that you would suggest people walk away with? Absolutely. I think that so much of sort of what we talked about before, the social aspect and just the, you know, the, the fact that people enjoy shopping there and, and want to go back is very much in the physical layout and and construction of the market. One thing that I thought was really important is a lot of the markets offered some kind of protection from the elements. And that seems like a pretty basic thing, but with the exception of a few street markets in areas where it didn't rain as much, you really always saw some kind of roof structure, even if it had no walls, allowing the markets to operate rain or shine. That type of thing, you know, as well as, you know, are the aisles wide enough people can navigate safely and, and feel comfortable stopping to look at goods while others pass them by, you know, lighting and, and all of these types of things really are important to making making the space attractive for shoppers and, and enjoyable for vendors to work, you know, to work and be there. The whole idea of pedestrian flow seemed to be a central feature of these markets. You you talked a little bit about pedestrian streets and public spaces and kind of the layout and the intersection of these things. How much easier is it in the places that you were visiting in South America to pull this off than it would be in your typical North American city? Here, here's why I think it, 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 my sense is that it's easier. Yeah. Maybe you disagree with it. It's okay if it's not easy. <laughs> no, well, you know, I guess it's just that it's a good question. I think there's, Challenges anywhere, you know, in doing anything in, in a city street. Right. But I think a, a critical difference that I really noticed is that in South America, people, the majority of people I talk to, and it just seems that the way the cities operate, people still really, I think it's sort of that these spaces were never relinquished to the car, so that there is sort of this sense that, at least in certain areas, the streets still do belong to people and the market, and there's a real comprehension that it's a public benefit that we have some pedestrian streets that create safe shopping, you know, promenade type environments for people to stroll and, and enjoy, you know, shopping and doing their errands on the weekends. I think that that's something we used to have in the United States in, in different eras. You know, we look at like the streetcar era of, of U.S. planning a little bit. And some of these principles were more entrenched in the way we were used to having our communities be laid out, but that now it's sort of seems like it's a radical thing to suggest, you know, in, in some in some U.S. environments. I do think that's changing a little bit. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, Mike and Street Plant has worked a lot with uh, the, the concept of open streets, for example. But my sense is that here we're sort of trying to reinvigorate this idea after decades of pushing pushing people and, and these types of uses to the, to the margins of the streets really throughout our communities. But in, in some of these South American communities I went to, they had really protected space. So, over the decades, even as the car, you know, became really well integrated into some streets of the city, there are still these places. And so in that respect, I do think to some degree it's easier because people are just used to the idea and they, they really see the value in it. Now, your background includes work with a large transportation company doing a lot of public involvement and public engagement. I, I've got that right, don't I? 
Yeah, so I worked at a, well, I guess it's a smaller firm, but we worked on definitely some big projects. Um, okay. Howard Stein Hudson in New York, they're, they're a firm with us in presence in Boston and New York, although the New York firm recently changed hands. But the focus there was with public involvement for transportation planning and you know, transportation planning and research in general. I really had the benefit of working on some larger projects, for example, the Tavley Bridge that was a big one, right. and then some smaller things, you know, bus route changes in, in the neighborhood in Brooklyn. So sort of running the gamut, I, I just, you know, was very inspired by sort of learning more about transportation specifically in, in urban planning. And I think it's so related to health and, and just how we enjoy and experience our urban spaces. That yeah, it was, it was a really good experience for me. If you think of like the Tappan Zee, which I am not by any means an expert on, but just have gotten a little bit because a, a lot of our readers have sent me stuff on it because obviously there's a, a lot of public conversation going on. It seems to me that that project kind of epitomizes the, if I want to say top-down very formal process that we have kind of codified here in the United States. A lot of what you're talking about in the book and a lot of what you relate are stories that seem to me much more organic, much more bottom up and a little bit almost bordering on chaotic in terms of how they're set up. Is there a story there between those two? Is there something that we can learn here that maybe intuitively South Americans understand today and capture that we're just missing out on? I think from my own professional experience, I think, you know, I'm, I'm so interested in, in the bottom-up element that while it was always a good experience to sort of learn about the existing, maybe, you know, top-down structures that we have, I've, I've always gravitated more towards these, these bottom-up things. It's hard because, of course, you know, these issues are, are not always purely black and white. You know, I think in some ways, obviously, a lot of the regulations we have, you know, we put them in place because we feel they have some benefits, and, and surely they do. But a perfect example to me is the sort of tiered vending structure in in a market, right? So in the U.S., to sell, you know, food, for example, at any type of market, if it's a supermarket or, or you know, a, a public food market, like Reading Terminal, for example, you'd have to you'd have a lot of permits, you know, your business would all have to be in order, there'd be a lot of health inspections and certain costs associated with this level of formalization and regulation. The benefit being that when we go to a market, at a farmer's market or or something in the United States, we feel perfectly safe eating the food. You know, the downside is that it's there's not a ton of room for spontaneity, even though within a daily um, opening of the market. Yeah. Um, in South America, I think you see a ton of people at different levels, you know, walking uh, with, with a pushing cart or not even with a pushing cart, just a bag of something that they're selling. The downside of that, which is that, you know, you don't, as, as a shopper consumer, you're not as <laughs> right. confident in necessarily sure. what you're purchasing, but... But, you know, the upside is that people of all levels can be involved. And I guess what I see is is opportunity for both spaces to meet a little bit more in the middle. Yeah. Um, I think an ideal scenario would be one where markets operate with a little more nuance in the way that people can participate, pay into the, to the system to, you know, reap the benefits of the market. You know, as a vendor, you have to pay something to participate, but also, you know, have an appropriate level of, of regulation. I think that as much as we could have, you know, a little more space for that nuance. I think it just makes space in the marketplace richer. I've been really inspired the past year or so since I've heard more and more of 
stuff coming out of Detroit. And, you know, I've, I've been telling people Detroit's one of the most exciting cities in the country right now. And it's largely because there aren't the barriers to entry that there are in other places. My little hometown here, uh, we've gotten two new restaurants in the last year, both national chains. I wrote a thing here a couple months ago because the big news in the paper was Dunkin' Donuts is finally coming to Minnesota. And, no, you know, no. oh, wonderful, you know, but you, you look into this thing and you would think that like a donut shop would be one of the easiest startup businesses you could do, yet you have to have a half million dollar net worth, a quarter million dollar liquid net worth in order to be considered eligible to open up a Dunkin' Donuts, you know, a, a relatively simple operation one would imagine. It seems to me like our system I don't want to say needs to be broken down a little bit, but does lack that spontaneity or that ability of someone, you know, with an idea to kind of step forward and and be part of it. You know, I wonder if there's ways that we can deal with that here, start to roll that back so that we can provide more opportunity for people. Have you thought about that at all? Yeah. One thing that I've I've seen is really inspiring. I've been, you know, living in the Haven for the last year. The Haven has a amazing program called Project Storefronts, and this is something you know run in in part with the city's economic development uh, department. And basically, what the focus is that in you know in vacant storefronts, they're creating a, a program where an entrepreneur can apply uh, to use the storefronts, use a storefront space that's vacant, you know, in the project storefronts inventory for some type of use for usually a limited period of time. You know, sometimes you see six months, maybe a year, but a lot of times it's around six months. So it's more formalized than a pop-up shop might be for a weekend. Sure. But you're, they created a program where the barrier to entry for having a storefront in, you know, in downtown New Haven is much lower than it would be. And it allows people to get in there and try out something new in an area that the city's really trying to revitalize in a creative and local way. You know, I mean, I don't think that the, the city... You know, in general, there's not a desire to just see more Dunkin' Donuts go in downtown. There's a desire to reflect local business owners and, and something that is, is very New Haven, you know? So right, um, I right. think that's been a cool example to me of, of a way that you can create a much lower barrier for entry. Because I do agree with you. I think that it is a real problem. It's a challenge for creating meaningful spaces that, that really reflect our communities. I get the notion that people are freaked out about having no regulation. You go to a restaurant, whether it's a false sense of security or not, there's some sense that, okay, well, you know, they had to get a health department license and there's the chance that someone from an inspection place might show up and make sure they're doing things decently. Yet you and I both understand that that's probably less of a safeguard than like a Yelp rating even, or, you know, the recommendations you get from people who have been to a place before. It seems to me like yeah. we've gone too far and, and there's some space there that we can open things up maybe a little bit. Are people just too freaked out about that? I mean, is this just something that socially we need to maybe evolve or change in some way? Yeah, I think it's, it really comes to uh, mind for me when we talk about street food in the United States, uh, because I think change is always hard for people. And right. so I think there's the element of, you know, that, that dialogue of, okay, well, here's my brick and mortar restaurant. I am subject to a lot of overhead, including, you know, being able to pass these health inspections, but also just my rent and, and whatnot. And I'm really going to, you know, fight tooth and nail against these these food trucks who I see as is, is doing crushing upon my, my business. And I do totally understand that uh, argument. It, it does make sense. But I think at the same time, 
cities are changing and there's a desire from the consumer side for some more spontaneous and, uh, you know, out in the street type ways to consume and experience eating and shopping. I think as, as planners, we need to be able to help people be on board with the change rather than just fighting it. So, you know, are there ways to integrate this new spontaneity that in a way that doesn't directly compete with these restaurants? Or is there a way to help the restaurants in some way participate in, you know, maybe we, we relax some of the regulations around sidewalk cafe usage, and maybe they're able to do something in the street themselves that's exciting and, and sort of participate in their own way. I do think that it's a new wave in a way, and, and it's the change can be hard for people. I think you're right. There's an element of, of being a, a little too uptight about this, that we've created a framework that it is hard to have spontaneity. And I think we see that in a lot of regulations across a lot of categories. Right. Um, and I think we've talked about that a lot with tactical urbanism in street science too. Rules and regulations are, are useful and we put them in place, like I said, for, for reasons. But I think I'm seeing it really be time to, to rethink that because if we want our cities to be vibrant and keep growing and be nimble, we've got to find a way to integrate that, that energy. I think there's a lot of to, you know, young people today who maybe aren't seeing the opportunities there professionally the way that their parents did or their grandparents did. There isn't the kind of clear path. You know, you get out of college, you've got a degree, you get a job, you work your way up in a company. Those opportunities just aren't there the way that they were for a prior generation. It seems to me like there's a maybe some intergenerational stress here. And I'm wondering if, A, if you see that here in the U.S., and B, if you see that in other places where they do have more functioning markets that are more free flow, like you document in South America, or if they don't have that generational aspect to them, like I see here and experience here all the time. Yeah, well, it's definitely something I see in the U.S. And I think, you know, I'm talking to you um, right now from a co-working space. I mean, this is an example of structures that we've created in the U.S. to support much smaller businesses. You know, the, the idea that there's there's people looking for a shared office space with other very small startup type companies um, just wasn't really a thing, you know, in my dad or, or mom's generation uh, in the way that it is now. So I really agree with your statement that the younger generation right now is seeing a totally different workplace landscape and is looking for more opportunities to do things on in a, maybe a smaller scale or be able to start something up with less capital than in the past. You know, I was just very inspired in South America with overall this spirit of entrepreneurship that I felt like I just really saw in the markets. Um, so I don't know if I can really speak to, you know, people starting small companies, maybe from a, you know, more professional services standpoint, but at least what I was seeing in the market is that I just feel like people were really, maybe from necessity, but there was just really a spirit of getting out there and bringing their product to market, whatever it may be. And just, you know, that they, there was very much a space for them to do it, either because someone was looking for the other way or because that's just the way the market was structured, but people were able to to be entrepreneurial, you know, in small scale. And, you know, maybe the fact that they, they do have something else that they do during the week and they just come to the market on that Saturday and sell whatever the product is, you know, sort of a, a supplementary income type thing. It is kind of fascinating because you get used to here, like in the town I live in, you get used to here going to Target, you know, going to Walmart, doing your shopping in those kind of more despotic kind of places. And then when you have the chance to travel, and I've, you know, been lucky enough to be able to go to Europe quite a few times, you find yourself just drawn to these markets that are the places where the people who live in those cities 
go all the time. I mean, they'll swing by on the way home from work and pick up the food for the evening. It seems like, you know, you are maybe a little bit even hopeful in the book that you're writing that, you know, not only is this starting to happen, but this could actually become a dominant force in this country. Is that a hope that you kind of have internally? Yeah, I think that, you know, growing up, I definitely lived, it sounds like in in a community, maybe a little more rural, but sounds similar to yours, where (laughs) we went to the grocery store on Sunday, we went to Stop Shop, and we stopped up, and that was it. You know, there was no popping home on on the way home. My city has gone from 800 to 8,000, you know, or total area, like 13,000 to like 30,000 in um, my lifetime. So when I was a kid, it was that way. It was like once a month trip to the grocery store. And then, you know, when you did your school shopping, you would like put everyone in the car and drive for an hour and a half to get to, you know, the big city, you know, so things have changed in the fact that we can have access to more stuff, but is it different? Is it better? And I'm not sure, you know, we gutted our downtown in the process and lost all those stores and all those jobs and and all those people who were independent business owners who now, you know, can aspire to be the night manager at a big box store. And I, I think that that has changed our economy dramatically and not necessarily in a positive way for the people who live here. Yeah, and I would take it another level, something I see a lot too, that it hasn't just changed our economy, but it impacts our health. Yeah. I and mean, I think that, you know, when we look at, these things are all connected, you know, the ability to, if you're using transit to get home and you're going to walk a little bit anyway, and you're, and you're walking and you, you there's something conveniently located where you can get some food, you know, sort of the idea that you could meet some of your daily errand needs by walking and using transit, which are often so very connected allows you to have a little bit more of, of an active lifestyle and feel connected to your community. I think if, if you, you know, are simply from garage to, to parking lot, there's not a ton of chance to, to interact with people and build social capital. And there's many studies and, and books written about how much that impacts people's health, mental and physical. Um, I'm reading The Happy City right now. I don't know if you've read oh, yeah. that book, but yeah. uh, I've been finding it really, uh, really interesting and really speaking to some of the things that I saw in this market's research report as well. I think I hit on that a little bit in the conclusions of the of the markets project is that there's a really good diversity of, of, of products available in the market and the hours of operation and the central location do allow people to visit it on a frequent basis, do do daily shopping and, and it is a, a social space. You know, people meet their neighbors, they know the vendors and they feel, you know, very communal and it's just sort of a joy, you know, and I think a lot of times getting from your garage onto that road with all the stoplights where all the big box stores are and getting to the Target, not really a joy, you know? Right, right. We've made shopping and consuming a very efficient undertaking, but not necessarily optimized it for any of the other things, public health, you know, social interaction and those other things that it seemed like the market system, while more chaotic and maybe not so finely tuned to moving large numbers of product at cheap prices had a lot of other social benefits and a lot of other cultural benefits that we've just kind of shunned to the side. I sense that that's kind of part of what drew you to this whole project in the first place. Would that be accurate? Yeah, it definitely would. And you see it in the system that, you know, there are large, in in very dense neighborhoods, there's large, there are large central markets. And in some of the more residential, quieter spaces, you find a much smaller market 
it tends to have what people need. It wouldn't have 10 vegetable vendors, but you'll definitely have three and you'll definitely have someone selling uh, fruit and someone selling toilet paper and, you know, household products that one might need all in the market. And it's really within walking distance of, of everyone's house. You know, there seems to be sort of this radius around the market where if there isn't a market closed, people will perceive that commercial opportunity and, and one seems like it will start. You know, there's, there is a nimbleness to it that, that I really felt there in, in a lot of the neighborhoods and, the fact that people still really do depend on this more informal market yeah. and even just the, the hours of operation was something that really interested me. I think in the market resurgence we see in the United States, it tends to be pretty strict. Uh, okay. There's a farmer's market. It's from 11 to two on Saturdays. What I saw in contrast in these markets in South America was that it wasn't really clear uh, that there was a formal start or end time. It sort of just seemed that whenever the vendors felt it was worth their time, they'd be there. And, right. Uh, it was, pretty much most hours of most days. But, you know, when they felt that customers were slowing down, they just closed shop, you know. And in general, you could count on the, the basic hours of the day them being open, but there was some fluidity even to that. Yeah, um, which I thought was interesting. That's beautiful because there were times I, I was fortunate enough to spend quite a bit of time in Italy about a decade ago. When I first got there, you know, I was still attuned to my kind of American schedule. I would go out to do something, and it was siesta time, and um, no one was there. Like every shop was closed. I wasn't like culturally attuned to the fact that why would you have a shop open when everybody's home taking a nap? And then, you know, of course I would go out to eat at like five o'clock and none of the restaurants would be open because why would you open when everybody's still at work? There's a kind of a natural flow to the economy in those places that, you know, in our kind of artificially regulated environment, you don't get. Here we have a food truck court that has been allowed to be established kind of in a remote parking lot and they allow the farmer's market people in there twice a week. And yeah, it's very structured. Like you cannot be there before 10 o'clock. You have to be out by three. And, you know, it creates an environment that, you know, a lot of times they're standing around not doing anything. There's nobody there. And then other times you'll head over there. Like I'm going to swing by on my way home from work and everybody's gone because they're forced to leave. It seems like what you've documented here and what you've kind of shared with people is a more spontaneous kind of natural type of undertaking than a lot of what we experience here. Yeah. And it seems to me that there's room to allow for more of that, maybe within certain spaces that are sort of, uh, you know, designated for, for more spontaneous and, and bottom up use. I think when we were talking about product storefronts, but I think, you know, example of parking lots are, are a good example where there are opportunities of, pockets of, of space in our cities where I think we could be better allowing those those areas to be open for spontaneous use for, for markets and other community events without so much regulation around it. It is exciting to me to see that we're doing more of those things, but I think you're right that oftentimes it, it's still very regimented. I don't think it has to be. I think I think the you know the fluidity and, and spontaneity is really works well in the markets that I saw in South America. In the United States, when we look at cities and we look at, you said you grew up in Connecticut. Yep. I know there's a lot of cities there that are fantastic and there's a lot that are, are really struggling. When we look at recapturing some of those spaces that have lost a little bit of their vitality, it seems to me like there's a lot that can be learned from the work that you've put together here. Is that one of the takeaways? Like, you know, this is the first step in resurrecting or bringing back, you know, some of these places that we've just passed over now? Yeah, 
Yeah, and I, I think my interest was sort of especially looking at what's working, you know, what's making them work. And I think we've gone ahead and you know, we have ways that a lot of these farmers markets and, and uh, markets that are resurging in the U.S. operate. But I was curious to compare that to what seems to be working and happening in South America. And it just seemed to me much more informal and much more accessible in a lot of ways in terms of you know, places being open longer, uh, like I mentioned, the roof type structure, there's, you know, you're not getting the market canceled on a day when it rains. All these types of things to me were takeaways for, okay, if we really want to allow markets and more spontaneous spaces and marketplaces to exist, what are some of the things that we might need to do to make them viable and, and make them really work? At least, you know, what lessons could we draw from, from South America? So that's definitely, that definitely was a, a take home in my mind. You have published this book online and essentially given it away to people. You can go and download it and we'll put the address on our website when we publish this podcast. But that is really consistent with what Street Plans Collaborative has been doing for a long time, which is sharing information with people. What are you hoping people do with this book? What are you hoping comes out of this? I do think it's really important that it's free. I think, you know, it's, it was my observations, having thought about and visited markets a lot. And I hope that it's an inspiration to people who, you know, operate markets in the U.S. There's a lot of great nonprofits and, and people who, and city agencies who manage markets in towns and cities across our country. So I hope that there's some inspiration that they might draw from it. And I also hope that it presents an alternate way that things could exist. I hope, you know, not everybody gets to go down to South America for five or six months and travel around and look at these spaces. So I was really hoping to convey a little bit, what is it like? You know, and because to me, experiencing other communities and, and, and places always really helped remind me that there's no one way of doing things. I think sometimes you can get pretty entrenched in the way our cities operate and, and the way we run places. Like another goal of mine with this report was to say, hey, look, here's a here's some different things, you know, and, and, and it's okay. It's actually really nice. This is how it, how it works, just to sort of present the other things I was seeing and finding. Because I really had a great experience doing it. You know, it was, it was very positive and, and fun. I think that even, you know, even food, we were talking about the, the food uh, ratings, you know, ratings at restaurants, and yeah, sort of the, the yeah. rating of, of safety. One thing that I feel was really true about the markets is that, you know, people might joke that, oh, it's not always the cleanest, and oh, you know, you're a tourist, I hope you don't get sick eating the food there. But the truth of the matter is, you know what, maybe once I did get sick, but it was fine after that. You know, most of the time, <laughs> right. uh, I don't you know, I don't, I don't want to like, encourage people to to go and just recklessly eat any street food uh, without you know, the proper preparation. Yeah, yeah. You know, pills and all the things that you need sometimes when you're traveling from that type of thing. But I guess to me, there's just sort of a, a lesson in, yes, it's not as stringent. And yes, uh, there are some concerns about hygiene. But at the end of the day, I think we can be a little obsessed with that. And down there, it just didn't seem to be as much of a concern, you know. Well, there's uh, the, Most of the time, it was fine. It's interesting because... You know, we really have gone to great lengths to put on a very clean front to a lot of places. Um, all of us have grown up for the most part working in some type of food establishment as a entry level job and know that behind the scenes is a lot different than the facade you get out front. There's something kind of nice and transparent about a market because you actually like watching the person in many cases prepare your food and deal with your food. And, you know, there's something almost even more. I think to me comforting about watching some of that. And I tend to be kind of a picky eater anyway. So kind of going through that process is, 
I've found it to be a place where I can really enjoy despite the l- lack of kind of a clean, nice facade. I don't know about you, but for me, it's... Yeah, it and is there's a, also the sense that some of the ingredients come from yeah. know, prepared foods and the ingredients are coming from that exact market. So there's there's the knowledge that, okay, you know, especially in some of these South American markets, I mean, there are live chickens and then there's someone serving chicken and you're like, okay, you know, maybe there's, you know, a lot of a lot of kind of integration of the vendors from those selling the raw ingredients to those preparing the food. So there's that element too. Right. Yeah. And I got to say, there's nothing better than a fresh fish market, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't include this in the report, but I did go to a really interesting fish market in Lima. You know, Lima is on the coast of Peru and seafood is a huge part of their food there. Um, you know, it's a big part of cuisine and uh, the fish market was was a pretty fascinating experience. You you actually put plastic bags on your shoes so that you can kind of walk through <laughs> because they're constantly just you know butchering fish and fish sure, are coming in and out, sure. and then there's just buckets of water you know washing things away. <laughs> so you you could get some gross fishy water all over your shoes. If yeah, you're careful. Hey, well, this is beautiful work. Is there a place that people can get a hold of you? If they're interested in knowing more, interested in getting in touch with you and interested in working with you on things across this continent? So, you know, I can be reached at my email at Street Plans is Julie at streetplans.org. And Street Plans on the our issue site, we have, you know, a link to this report as well. Issue is a uh, it's I S S U. UU, many people may know it, but um, it's a platform that allows you to uh, publish documents, you know, PDF documents online for free and, and allow them to be open access for others to download and read them. So you can find the Mercatus Project on the Street Plans Collaborative issue site as well. Yeah, and that's at yeah, street, I, streetplans.org, right? Exactly. That is streetplans.org, uh, plans with an S. Well, beautiful work. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. And I look forward to meeting you in person. Maybe, I don't know if you're planning to be in Buffalo or not in June. I know yeah, I'm, I'm hoping I might be able to join. So I hope I'll meet you there or sometime in the future. And that, it was great to get the opportunity to talk to you. That would be fantastic. And, you know, not to be personal, but I know you're getting married. So congratulations <laughs> on that Thank too. Thank you. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's actually happening on Saturday. So <laughs> you're joking me. So th- you're getting married like within days. Yeah, on Saturday. Oh, you know, wow. And it's funny, um, we actually really, we're getting married in Philadelphia and we did really look at doing our wedding in the Reading Terminal Market. And uh, we wound up working another venue, but I was pretty excited wow. uh, to, to think about that possibility. Well, um, now I'm very honored that you would take the time in such a busy week to chat with me. So thank you so much. Yeah, of course. It was really my pleasure. So best of luck to you and all your work. And thanks again for the opportunity. Thanks, Julie. And thanks, everybody, Talk for listening. You yeah, you take care. And keep doing what you can to build strong towns. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. 
Like whenever I see a televised event that's a huge, like the, the Olympics opening ceremony or a Times Square at, at uh, midnight uh, on, on New Year's Eve, everybody, they see seas of people all looking at it through their phone. Yeah. Like there's explosions and acrobats, but they're looking at it through a little three-inch screen. Like I think if Jesus comes back and starts telling everyone everything, it'll just, everybody's just going to be twittering and they won't be like... I am Christ and I have returned. Oh my God, Jesus is right in front of me, right now. 